Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solve Regina University. Today I'm going to be speaking with Rocio Rosales about her paper, A First Look at Applied Behavior Analysis Service Delivery to Latino American Families Raising a Child with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Rocio is an associate professor of psychology and coordinator of the Master of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis and Autism Studies program at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. She earned her bachelor's degree in psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and her master's and doctoral degrees from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Her research and clinical interests include verbal behavior, derived stimulus relations, student and caregiver training, and instructional design in higher education. Her publications reflect her wide range of interests in applied behavior analysis. She has previously served on the editorial board for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. She also served as an associate editor for the Psychological Record and the Analysis of Verbal Behavior, and was a pioneering editor of ABAI's behavior dissemination blog, Verbal Behavior Matters. Rocio has actively worked to raise awareness of ABA to underserved communities through various projects and professional collaborations. As a first-generation Mexican-American and first-generation college student, she is passionate about expanding the diversity of experience and thought within the field. She hopes that her work will help pave the way for future generations of researchers and practitioners who share her background. This is one of my favorite interviews I've done for this podcast. I'm excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, here's my interview with Rocio Rosales. Hello, Rocio, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited to have you here and to learn about your paper focused on a first look of applied behavior analysis service delivery to Latino American families raising a child with autism spectrum disorder. But before we jump into the paper, we always love learning about our guests to hear about what your current role is, maybe a little bit of your background, and why you're interested in this particular research. So would you mind sharing some of that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So I was introduced to the field of behavior analysis as uh, an undergraduate psychology major um, at the University of Nevada, Reno. I was in my junior year, I believe, maybe it was maybe my senior year of, uh, you know, taking all these courses in psychology and uh, not really knowing what I was going to do next. Um, just knowing that 
um, I was, you know, still very interested in the field generally, but not really sure what to do with it. Uh, and then I took a class uh, on learning and specifically in applied behavior analysis. Uh, and it just all clicked. <laughs> it all made sense. Uh, everything that I had uh, been learning um, really just kind of honestly uh, went out the door. I was like, okay, so this is what I've been waiting for. Um, not only the direct application, but just the, the worldview that it introduced me to. I could you know, see those principles in action in day-to-day uh, -day interactions that I was having, that my family members were having. And I just, I wanted to, to learn more. And within that course, we were actually required to do some applied uh, work. It was only like a few hours of just kind of getting your feet wet. And one of the, um, one of the tasks that I did or one of the settings that I went to was working with um, uh, adults with intellectual disabilities. And I, I did my, my very, first, very first preference assessment, I think. <laughs> on the spot there uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, and then I, you know, I really enjoyed the, the course. Uh, I had an opportunity to do some more applied work uh, for credit as an undergraduate student. So I became uh, what they called a tutor at the Center for Autism. Um, that was part of, I think it was called the Early Childhood Autism Center at the time at the University of Reno. I worked there uh, with uh, Pat Gezi and his graduate students. Uh, for, um, uh, I think it was maybe a little bit less than a year or a, a semester because I was getting ready to graduate. And uh, actually one of the, the families that I worked with happened to be with um, a Mexican family that had a young child um, with autism and they were you know Spanish speaking. And so that was my first introduction to really getting experience and uh, applying the principles that I was learning about and also kind of being in the setting where I could identify um, as a Mexican American with the family who, and, and as a bilingual uh, Spanish speaking, native Spanish speaker, um, really being able to, to see the difference that I was making in their lives. Um, so, you know, I, I, I got hooked with the, with the, with the whole worldview, with the, with the application. Uh, I also got experience working um, with Ted Boyce, uh, doing some work with fluency and, um, you know, doing um, graphing on acceleration charts. And then uh, I went on and did my graduate work at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, uh, where I also got um, a lot of really varied opportunities in behavior analysis. So that was, uh, it was great to be able to uh, get exposed to and be able to apply um, behavior analysis in many different settings. So I, I, I continued my work uh, with families and, and children who were impacted by autism, but also worked with adults with developmental disabilities. Um, also worked uh, Project 12 Ways, so that's a grant-funded, state-funded um, program that's still running now. Uh, that the goal is to reunify families who um, are involved with the, the Department of Child and Family Services. So we did a, a parent training in the home, um, and then you know even got to go to, to Anna State Hospital uh, or Shot uh, in in Southern Illinois, where. Um, uh, I was working with, you know, uh, adults with, that were severely impacted uh, with intellectual disabilities. So really was, I think, uh, pretty lucky that I uh, had the privilege to kind of get a really diverse set of experiences uh, as an applied behavior analyst and part of my training. Um, and then I landed, um, I, I, I started doing some outreach work after I completed my master's degree um, with a uh, migrant community uh, that was 
about 20 minutes or is about 20 minutes from Carbondale in Cobden, Illinois. Uh, so uh, I believe it's still there. They have a preschool uh, for the families who are temporarily hired to come in and, and work um, out in the fields in agriculture. And I did my, so I did my dissertation work uh, with the families and specifically with their kids um, teaching rudimentary um, English to their kids using behavioral procedures. Um, so, you know, giving this context, uh, kind of leading into how I, you know, I've been interested really in the work that I'm, that I've landed on now. Uh, currently, I'm an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, uh, and I coordinate, we have a master's program in applied behavior analysis and autism studies, and I've been here uh, since 2013. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like providing ABA services to diverse populations has been a consistent theme across your academic journey and really your journey across the United States, starting in Nevada with your education, uh, laying over in the Midwest, and then now on the East Coast. So you've kind of done it everywhere, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In this particular project, you looked at the challenges faced by Latino families in terms of, of uh, obtaining ABA services for their child. At the beginning of your article, you listed a number of the challenges typically faced or, so, or sort of the previous research has, has talked about Latino families facing. Could you hit on some of the, the major obstacles that Latino families face or that has been written about already? Sure. Yeah. So the the research that I had read when I started to get interested in this work, and, and if I could give you a little bit of background of how I landed here. So when I moved to New England, um, part of my background that I skipped over, not intentionally, is I, I had worked in my first job out of graduate school was working at another institution in Northeast Ohio for four years. So that was an area that uh, there weren't a lot of behavior analysts working in that area at the time that I was there. It's changing now. Uh, when I moved to Massachusetts, I, um, I knew that there were going to be a lot more <laughs> behavior analysts in this area and that, you know, uh, Massachusetts was, you know, is, is really a hotbed for behavior analysts. And I was really excited about the opportunities that, um, that I was going to have. And I uh, was a little surprised when I first moved out here in this specific geographic region where uh, I live and work, that there weren't uh, really as many services or, or any clinic-based services that were available in the geographic region. And so it got me interested in kind of um, this, this area of research in general, because as I said in my intro, I, you know, having diverse background in the different, um, different settings and different populations that I work with, I hadn't really delved into this specific literature uh, until until I moved to Massachusetts. And so what I started to learn uh, was that there was uh, documented evidence showing that there are disparities in the diagnoses that are made for specifically for Black and Latino families that have a child with autism. And those disparities uh, really make an impact uh, not only on just the fact that you're getting a diagnosis, but it's so large that sometimes uh, that population of children are not being diagnosed until their school age. So they start kindergarten at four or five or preschool uh, versus their white uh, 
counterparts who may be receiving a diagnosis a little bit earlier, which of course means that they're also able to access those early intensive behavioral intervention services that we know can be so effective and have such a big impact on uh, a child's uh, development and learning over the course of the time that they're receiving the services. So there's been a number of studies that have shown that really time and again, uh, that those disparities uh, have been around and they still unfortunately exist today. Um, that demographic is changing a bit, but, but that's certainly something that is, is well documented. And so when you start to look at, well, what are some of those, uh, what could be called disadvantaging factors that may impact this specific population, one that may be obvious um, is sometimes if you have a family who has a language barrier, so English is not their first language, that may impact their ability to, uh, to communicate to a pediatrician, for example, concerns that they might have. Um, there could also be, uh, in general, just poor healthcare access that uh, also limits you know, what, what services they're able to receive, just basic medical services that they're able to receive, the types of pediatricians or the, the uh, availability of different pediatricians. Do they have a choice of who they're going to, to go um, to have to choose who their pediatrician is for their child? Um, uh, with the with the language barrier, there could also be just um, uh, issues with uh, healthcare literacy. So, being able to read information about you know these different uh, diagnoses or different behaviors that could, that their child could be presenting with, um, and then you know of course there's also um, other factors that that could be impacting not specifically just Latino populations, but things like socioeconomic status and. Um, just lack of awareness of, of services that are available once you receive a diagnosis uh, are all things that have been documented that definitely impact um, some groups more than others. So with this disparity that you noted and, and work that's already been done, you sought to expand upon that and, and sort of to, to gain more information about what obstacles Latino families may be facing that may be contributing to some of these disparities. And so you set out in your study to target a few different goals. Would you mind sharing what your, your primary goal of this, this project was? Sure. So based off of the literature that we had read, and we knew that there were these documented disparities that existed within um, spe these specific populations, none of the studies at the time that we were conducting this research were looking specifically at applied behavior analysis services. And uh, obviously that's the area that um, we were really interested in exploring, you know, why isn't this available, uh, but also do, do it, it, are there barriers that exist uh, within this population to gain access to these services? So the aim of the study was really to just, you know, explore a, a wide range of factors that may impact the ability of families, uh, Latin American families specifically, that have a child with autism to, to either receive or to maintain access to these ABA services. And then part of what we also want to do was if we interviewed families that were receiving ABA services, we wanted to get a little bit of information about their perceptions of these services. How did they, how did they, um, what did they think about the services and the providers that, that they were working with? Super cool and, and interesting and important work. Now, how did you do it? What was the, the process you took to explore some of these variables? 
Yeah. So, um, so this is where, you know, this is, this was a, a very new area of research for me, certainly not a new area of interest, but I, um, you know, had not done any type of uh, research that didn't involve a single subject <laughs> case design. And so it was uh, really important for me to find a collaborator that did have experience in the development of, in this case, we developed a structured uh, interview. But at the time when we first, you know, started thinking about how do we get this information, of course, there are different ways that you can do it. You could develop a survey, you could do more uh, open-ended interviews. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to, uh, with the assistance of my colleague at UMass Lowell, Richard Serna, who's also an author on this paper, uh, connection with UMass Medical School, uh, and a colleague there who is very well-versed, uh, she's the last author on the paper, Carol Curtin, in the development of surveys and structured questionnaires. So that was really the first step in figuring out, like, what are the types of questions that we want to ask in order to get the information that we're looking for? And then how do we develop this questionnaire in a way that uh, is going to make sense in terms of uh, the flow that it has? So there's these different categories of questions that we want to ask. And then, you know, how do we ask them uh, in a way that we're still able to get some quantitative, uh, some to summarize the data in a quantitative quantitative manner? Um, but even, you know, again, just, you know, what are the different domains? How are we going to ask the questions? How many questions are we going to ask? Uh, we set up with her, her assistance, uh, set it up the structured questionnaire so that it was, uh, scripted because we wanted to be able to train somebody else to assist with the interviews. Uh, our goal was to get at least 50 families. We ended up with, with fewer than that. Um, but we, I didn't want to be the only one doing uh, the interview. So if we had a way where we could have it to be more of a structured interview, um, then, you know, there would be a, a script involved with, you know, if, if a respondent, uh, if a parent answers uh, yes or no to a certain question, you skip to this section, or if they answer yet, yeah, uh, if they answer no, then, you know, you continue. Um, so all of that really um, required um, a, a lot of, um, a lot of meetings uh, to figure out how is it that this is going to work? What are the, again, what's the information that you want to get from, from these interviews? And so the, what we landed on was um, really uh, four, four, four different domains um, of questions that we asked. So we asked about initially about just the diagnostic process. So for example, one of the questions asked at what age the family suspected uh, any atypical development in their child? And then what was the pediatrician's initial response to the parent's concern? We also asked about the, the services that the child was currently receiving. So we included a, a lengthy list of all the types of specialty services that they could receive. So speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and of course, ABA services. And for each of those, we wanted to ensure that uh, the parents fully understood the questions that we were asking. So uh, we gave descriptions of each of those types of services. So it was clear to them, you know, that they could respond yes or no, or, or I'm not sure. Uh, we also asked about the, the reason. So if they indicated that they were not receiving ABA services, we asked about reasons for not getting those services. Um, and then if they responded that they were getting ABA services, we asked questions about when the child started to receive the services and then things like the location where they received the services, uh, how many hours they were receiving, 
Uh, and then finally, their perceived quality of the services, if, if they were receiving a, receiving those services at the time of the interview. Uh, for all the families, regardless of whether they um, indicated that they were or were not receiving ABA services, we did collect socio-demographic data. So um, those are things that we were able to report on you know, their level of education, the parents and child's race, ethnicity. Uh, we asked about years living in the U.S. Uh, and then languages that were spoken in the home. So Spanish, English, or a combination of the two. Um, so that process uh, took took a while. Um, you know, once we had the questionnaire or the, the structure interview fully developed, we also uh, translated it uh, into Spanish. And I work primarily on that as a native Spanish speaker. I was able to to translate, but we also uh, really wanted to ensure that it was done in a way that um, not only you know made sense and it was and it was accurate and. Um, and, and that the parents would be able to understand the questions we were asking. So we had somebody back translate it uh, into English. And then uh, this was also part of our process for the IRB. So we, you know, we, we had multiple people involved uh, with, that, with that process just to even get the structure interview in a way that it was complete. Um, and then the final step in that was we, we piloted out the, the questionnaire with a couple of families, again, just to ensure that it, everything you know was easily understood and that the parents uh, were able to respond to the questions that we had. That's really interesting the way that you went about creating this and I think that collaboration seems to be a theme of, of people who end up coming on Babcast to talk about their research and the need to be able to collaborate to, to come up with uh, sort of interesting and useful research and so you were, as you said, you were interested in this type of research and in this topic. Did you have like specific questions you were interested in asking and then sort of reached out to collaborators and then developed it further out from there? Or what did that process look like? Yeah, definitely. So my, my main uh, question that really drove this research initially was um, why, why aren't families... Um, getting these ABA services or, and or do they know about these ABA services? And then the second thing that I did wonder about um, just kind of, you know, uh, growing up in the field and, you know, my previous experience and being kind of paired up with a family who, um, who was also bilingual and me being a native Spanish speaker um, and having experience in my graduate program with kind of being the only one that, that looked like me and uh, that was also bilingual, curious um, about, you know, if families were able to find um, therapists um, and or supervisors who, who spoke their native language. And, you know, this is an area that's been getting a lot of attention, you know, in the last few years. And um, we started this work um, back in 2014. Uh, it obviously took a while to get it done and to get it published into its final format. Um, just published this this year, but th those were really the things that were driving what I was curious about. And and then from that, you know, with Carol's help, she really helped me to think. Uh, I think more broadly about like, well, you know. If, if you're going to ask these questions, maybe there are other areas that would be relevant for you to get information about um, in order to in order to really uh, be able to get a, a, a better uh, picture of what the families are experiencing. Because 
know, not to skip to the results, but, you know, we, we, we didn't know what we were going to end up with. Right. So we were going to send out information to see who was going to respond to our call for, do you want to sit down and have this interview with me? And we didn't know if parents were going to, you know, first of all, if they were going to say yes, but also, you know, whether or not their child was receiving services at the time that the interview was conducted. So with, with her assistance, then we were able to kind of have these kind of separate um, uh, set of questions, depending on how the participant was responding. One of the driving forces behind your, your interest here, you said, was related to uh, finding therapists or, or the ability for families to find therapists who speak their language. And it made me think, you know, if you look at like the, the, the data published on the BACB website, it talks about racial or, or sort of ethnic identity, but it doesn't specify Mm -hmm. uh, the languages that people may be able to speak, whether it's their native language or they're just fluent in a language mm -hmm. that they learn. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's an interesting difference that I don't think is, is commonly talked about enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, you know, and, and, you know, we, we have those demographic data now, thankfully that were published. I think that first attempt to get that information is, is a great first step. Um, but there's definitely, as you've pointed out more that we need to, I think, to be able to just um, have at our fingertips <laughs> to be able to know where we are and, you know, what steps we might need to take still as a field in order to continue to advance um, in, in these areas of, of diversity. On the topic of, of language, you talked about wanting to be able to attract as many participants as you could to 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 uh, provide their answers in these these interviews. And so, in efforts to do so, you wanted to make sure that it, the the language is going to be accessible to them. And so, it sounds like you were prepared to do it in either English or Spanish, and mm -hmm. that your your interviewers were bilingual able to do it in English or Spanish. How did you find uh, research assistants that, that had that skill set? Were they like your graduate students or where did they come from? No. So these were undergraduate students that worked with us. Um, yeah. At the time um, we didn't have any graduate students. Now that's changed uh, in our program. Thankfully we have uh, quite a few students who are bilingual and multilingual uh, but when I was conducting this research, I was uh, fortunate to be able to identify a couple of students who were bilingual, also native Spanish speakers. And so um, uh, they were able to assist. And um, sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to intentionally forget my, uh, my, my wonderful <laughs> graduate student, Alberto, who is uh, on, uh, on the publication. Of course, he was involved uh, with this as well. But I think because he was the outlier. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I failed to to mention him. My uh, my apologies, Alberto, if you're listening. Uh, of course, that you know he was he was the sole uh, graduate student that we had that was bilingual at the time that we were conducting this research. Um, so yeah, so they were all native Spanish speakers, and um, like I said, I was you know we were able to to work collectively to to work on both that translation back translation and uh, and then we had some training to um, to be able to go through that structure interview in a way that we wouldn't get tripped up on, you know, how do we move through it and, 
because depending on how the participant was answering, we had to skip over questions or move to the next section. Um, so we had some practice, uh, you know, brief, you know, review, rehearsal um, in both Spanish and in English. That's awesome and very resourceful to use undergraduate students uh, with Alberto's help. I thought the way you went about recruiting, although it's not something I necessarily bring up in, in these interviews, I thought the way you went about recruiting was very interesting and, and, and I think helpful in casting a wide net. So would you mind describing your efforts in recruitment and, and I suppose segueing into how many participants you ended up getting involved mm -hmm. with the study? Yeah, sure. So yeah, we were trying to cast a wide net and um, because we weren't directly working with uh, any uh, specific agency um, at the time, we created a flyer that was both in English and Spanish and then um, certainly did uh, email blasts to service providers, both ABA and just early intervention service providers um, to different public schools in the area. Um, but then uh, I also had... Uh, and I think I did probably did some of this too. I had one of the students that was helping me go out and physically post flyers uh, in the community. So uh, in public libraries, uh, pediatrician offices, um, even at laundromats, um, you know, thinking of, you know, where are the people that we want to interview going to be? Where are they, you know, how likely is it that, you know, if we're really trying to find people who are not getting services, if we only focus on sending our email to service providers, then it's unlikely that they, we're going to get the, the participants that we're looking for and hoping to interview. Um, and then we also did a, a post uh, in the Spanish newspaper and even an ad in a, in a uh, Spanish radio station. Um, and I wish that we would have uh, kept track of who the part, like how it, we had asked that question, like, how did you <laughs> hear about this and tracked it? Uh, we don't have that information. And we ended up with 28 families, but that took, it took a while to get to that number. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a relatively small and for this type of research, um, I think, you know, again, because I've Previous to this, I had only really done single subject design. 28 participants was, was a lot for me, but then, you know, Carol had to kind of talk me down. I'm like, oh, no, actually, you know, it's not, it's not that many. It's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, a wide variety of uh, different places where we were um, posting the flyers and, and trying to do outreach. That's awesome. And I think... 28, you know, as you said, isn't the, the largest number for this type of research, but as you talk about, I mean, it's, it's a step in the direction of understanding these issues. I think there are a lot of topics related to this and just across the board that are, it can be difficult to get sort of huge turnouts for participants or get the clearest data in every situation, but these are topics that we don't commonly talk about or, or know a lot about in behavior analysis. And so mm -hmm. study with 28 participants, well, that's still extremely, extremely valuable and useful and, and important information for the community to understand. So uh, I'm happy you decided to, to go ahead and move forward with publishing with just the 28. 
Now to segue a little bit into your results, you've got beautiful tables set up throughout the, the paper that, that show all the results. And I'm not going to ask you to go through and read the specific uh, statistics on, on the results. But if we were to just look at uh, sort of components of your results to start with, with one of the pieces you looked at was participant demographics. Are there any results from this particular section that jump out to you as being pretty interesting and noteworthy? And can we talk a little bit about those and then we can kind of go through the, the various sections? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so just uh, on the age, one thing that I don't think that I mentioned is our inclusion criteria for the interviews. We did place a limit on um, the age of the child because we were thinking about trying to identify families who, um, again, maybe were or were not receiving ABA services and also kind of the timeline of when the interviews were conducted and things that were happening specifically in the state of Massachusetts that um, maybe would prohibit families from receiving ABA services that then after a certain year wouldn't really um, be applicable anymore. Uh, so certain laws that were passed that, you know, really allowed families to all families to be able to access at least minimum uh, number of hours of ABA services through different uh, through different sources. And so we cut it off at eight. So, you know, the, the oldest child that uh, we interviewed, the parents reported that, that they were eight. But then the as far as the um, the cultural identity of both the mothers and the fathers, I think it's it's really representative of of uh, the state. So, you know, um, when we look at Latin American families, it's a very large demographic. Uh, the one unifying theme is that, you know, uh, no matter the country of origin, if you're identified as Latin American, uh, they're Spanish speaking, right? So uh, many of the families that we, uh, that we interviewed identified as Dominican, Puerto Rican, largely more so than I think what you would see in, in the Southern part of the United States and Texas and California, maybe even parts of Illinois where there might be a more predominant Mexican American or Central American communities. Um, but then I think the, the things that probably are uh, most relevant for the results and implications of the findings that we had was uh, levels of education and years living in the US. So the large majority of the families that we interviewed and we did ask the question of both mothers and fathers education level um, had a, at least a bachelor's degree. Um, and that is, uh, you know, it has implications for uh, things like uh, uh, both, I think, access to healthcare and then uh, literacy, health literacy, um, the ability also to uh, speak both English and Spanish. So that's a, a question that we ask. So what are the languages that are spoken in the home? What languages that you speak to your child? 68% um, of them uh, said that they did speak uh, Spanish to uh, in the home, but then um, there was a percentage of them that said that they spoke, spoke both equally. Uh, and although we interviewed families for the most part in Spanish, because that was their first language and their preferred language when doing these kinds of, um, when answering these kinds of questions, many of them were bilingual. Um, so I think that that also has implications for things like being able to advocate for uh, getting access to services and ask, feeling comfortable asking questions. Um, uh, and, and then the last part is the years living in the U.S. So uh, there's a large uh, Puerto Rican community in Massachusetts. 
Um, and many of them, you know, reported that uh, they had either uh, were born in Puerto Rico uh, and then had moved here as a child or had been living in the U.S. for more than 10 years. So I think, again, the difference, it would be interesting. And one of the things that I'm still very interested in, um, given the results that we got in the population that we were able to recruit, is really being able to, to document the differences in um, immigrant families who are here for, you know, less than a year or even up to five years versus somebody who has been living in the U.S. for uh, multiple years, maybe ha also has other children who have gone through um, a school system or, or have been receiving any kind of services, um, because that obviously contributes to your own learning history and your ability to be able to navigate these systems that uh, are, are really quite different from uh, people's uh, home countries and uh, and also just really confusing for for everyone. And so when you um, when you add that layer of not only then is this something that's very new, but then you also potentially have a, a language barrier or you're really not sure if what you're experiencing is different because not just because you're not familiar with it, but because there's a difference in your culture. Um, I think that then that impacts how you respond or if you respond to being able to to seek out more information to somewhat blend this section and with some of the key points you made in your discussion you talked about some of the complications and limitations with with this study was issues related to immigration concerns and how that may have affected who was willing to participate and I think in, in some ways that fits into this demographic section. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So again, you know, we were really hoping to cast a wide net and went out and did all these different um, different ways of, of recruiting. Um, but then, you know, when we look at the, the demographics of the participants, many of them, as I said, reported that they had been living in the U.S. for definitely more than, than one year. And then many reported or have more than half reported that they were living in the U.S. for more than 10. Um, so, you know, when we had a question actually in the interview that specifically asked, you know, um, if families were not getting the ABA services that their child um, should be receiving, uh, were they concerned about problems that they might have with uh, immigration if they sought out these services? And none of the families that we interviewed re responded, yes, I'm, I'm concerned. So that, you know, indicates that the families that we were able to interview, I guess, you know, just one, I felt, felt safe, uh, being able to do this, get on the phone to a stranger <laughs> and give their personal information, right. Cause they're giving me their phone number, their name, um, they're responding to the flyer. Uh, I'm not reaching out to them. They're, they're reaching out to me. Um, there's also just even that power differential of university researcher versus somebody in the community. Um, the level of education of the participants, I think, indicates that they were probably just more familiar with that this is something that, you know, that is totally legitimate and it's okay to do this. You're, you're not going to um, it's, and it's, you know, obviously going through the consent process that it's all, you know, confidential and all that. And so, um, even though, even, even someone like me who is, uh, a native sp Spanish speaker, um, 
Mexican American, first generation, uh, you know, can identify with 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 people in the community that I that I hope to interview. I wasn't able to do that outreach that I hoped that I would. And I think since the since the these interviews ended, we've thought about ways that we could collaborate with um, with hospitals, for example, who are seeing these families and providing these diagnoses um, initially so that we can potentially be able to get more families to respond. Um, because I think it's different when when you hear something on the radio or you uh, see a, a flyer versus uh, a trusted professional uh, who's encouraging you to, you know, to reach out to somebody, uh, whether it's for services or to, to do something like this, to, to, you know, to have an interview with someone. That makes a lot of sense. And as you were talking and you're talking about like potentially uh, families who are newer to the U S or potentially uh, in a sort of migratory status or they're moving around or, or moving back and forth, sort of the added complications there. I imagine in, in many ways, it's, it's just opening up a giant can of worms to sort of consider all of the different complexities of how to actually uh, reach every single individual. And, and you make a lot of great points about uh, some of the, the apprehension that anyone is going to have around participating in research studies and mm -hmm. seeing more college educated parents makes sense that they're going to be more willing to, to be part of something like this. Um, still provides again, uh, really, really helpful information, uh, starting with the next part of your results, which is shown in table two, which talks about the, the child's ages when they, when the parents suspected a diagnosis and when they actually got the diagnosis. And so, would you mind talking a little bit about that and then maybe talk uh, a little bit about what the implications or the, how this ties into the discussion and how this is a little different than what other people have seen? Sure. Yeah. So we asked questions about when parents suspected that something, uh, atypical development uh, in their child, and then also asked questions about when their child was diagnosed. So um, this in general was, was good news for this sample because what the results uh, indicated was that um, there wasn't a lengthy period of time from when parents were saying to their pediatrician or reporting that they had said to their pediatrician that they were concerned and then the age when their child was diagnosed. So um, the, the majority of uh, the families you know, reported that their child had been diagnosed by the age of three or younger, which is, um, is different from the results that had been reported in previous studies. And I think one of the things that likely contributes to this uh, is the geographic uh, region where we are. So again, in, in Massachusetts, you know, we, it, it's a state that uh, thankfully, you know, there are quite a few resources that are available and um, in general, I think uh, knowledge uh, about autism um, it, with healthcare providers, specifically a lot of initiatives that have been done um, with state agencies that have really um, done a lot of good work and being able to uh, provide that kind of uh, training and just general knowledge information. Um, so we suspect uh, that that likely contributed to 
this information being, you know, different from what's been reported in, in previous studies. And again, really encouraging to, to see that, um, that that was the case for this, for the sample. That makes sense being that, as you said before, Massachusetts is so resource rich compared to other regions. Right. Uh, sort of despite the, the resources within Massachusetts, your next section of your results in table three uh, talks about some of the, the, the reasons or sort of the, the potential issues related to a majority of the participants' children receiving fewer than 16 hours a week of ABA services. And so can you talk about some of those reasons and why this is so troubling? Sure. So the types of questions that we asked when parents reported that the that their child was receiving ABA services, but it was fewer than uh, 25 um, uh, per week, uh, included things like, you know, did they know about or or did they have concerns about insurance not covering their services? Were they um, did they have challenges with things like transportation or uh, just communication with their provider about the ability to receive more services? Uh, and so for the results in, in this category or this domain of questions, what we found was that um, the parents who were reporting that this was the case really said that, um, that they didn't know if their child could receive additional hours of services. And then sometimes they also said that their provider, they responded um, uh, in an affirmative way that the provider was only available for a certain number of hours or that they, the provider was only available for the hours that were being provided. Um, and so, you know, the, those responses really indicate that there's uncertainty from the parent in knowing why it is that they're not getting more hours than what maybe they can receive. Um, so if you know if 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 they just flat out say I don't know I don't know if my child can receive additional uh, hours of ABA I think for for some of us the immediate question is like well let's just ask <laughs> let's just ask why not or or can we uh, and if you know parents are saying they're just responding that way it, it may indicate that that you know it may indicate if, uh, many things but one thing that could possibly be happening is that there's um, not a lot of um, uh, comfort levels uh, with being able to directly uh, question a professional who's working with a child about the number of hours that, you know, are available or, you know, it, or if, you know, there's schedule conflicts uh, that, you know, prohibit them from being able to receive more hours if uh, how that flexibility might be, might be able to build in, or even just looking at different options for providers, right? So, um, one of the questions that we asked about was waitlist, which I think is, uh, I think, a problem for all families who uh, receive a diagnosis for their child, a diagnosis of autism. Thankfully, only only one of the participants uh, that we interviewed said that that was the case. Um, and given that there are so many providers in the area, I think also just kind of knowing that you can um, you can look for a different provider. That 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 that's something that. Um, you know, is just just like you would, you know, identify a medical provider for for your own um, health, somebody that you're comfortable with, somebody that's a good match. That 
that's also the case for uh, an ABA provider. Um, one of the things that I wondered about is how often families maybe feel like they don't have, they, they can't make that choice, that they don't have a choice about, you know, if they don't feel comfortable with uh, the person that's working with their child, that they can, that they can seek out uh, somebody else. And then, you know, potentially then run the risk of not being able to find uh, somebody right away, but in the long run, whether or not that makes sense for them. Not to skip too far ahead here, but do you feel like there's anything or do you think there's anything that ABA providers should begin doing like immediately to, to help with this particular issue? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the again, the, the topic of um, just in general diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field of applied behavior analysis, and then specifically with cultural competence and cultural humility, uh, cultural responsiveness within the field, I think, you know, that's not something that, um, it's certainly not something that was part of my graduate program when I was going through um, my program, both master's and PhD. And uh, we're definitely um, have incorporated into our program. Um, it was really there from the beginning and before I joined, and we've been doing more and more in thinking about, you know, how important it really is for practitioners um, or behavioralists who are going to be practitioners to to have some formal training in these um, these uh, you know quote unquote soft skills um, because. If you're going to be working with with other people, um, and specifically in the context of uh, working with their child, whether it be a, a young child or an adult, um, being able to to not only show empathy for the you know the experience that the that they're going through, but also um, asking questions uh, about their family dynamic and um, their overall, overall their cultural, which, you know, could include things like schedules and um, availability and levels of comfort and um, trying to integrate um, families in the decision-making process and showing that, you know, there's, um, that there's a, some level of understanding that, that the questions that they may be asked, it's because, you know, really we need to have their input in order to make the most progress that it's not, it's not like, you know, you're just supposed to kind of check things off and just agree with everything that the professional is saying um, that, that you as a parent really um, know your child the best. Uh, and that includes kind of thinking about things related to whether or not the person that you're working with is a good fit for your child and for your family. Um, so I think it probably, you know, does relate to uh, uh, overarching kind of thinking about integrating some, some levels of um, cultural competence and cultural humidity training within graduate programs so that when students leave uh, graduate programs, that, that that's not something that they're learning uh, after the fact that it's integrated both in their in their coursework and then absolutely also in their in their clinical training that they get uh, during the time that they are going through a graduate program. 
That is extremely helpful. And I think a really great application in immediate benefit of something like a cultural competency and, and cultural humility. When I was, when you're providing that answer about connecting with parents so that they feel comfortable asking these questions and sort of questioning things, I thought to myself, a, any behavior analyst, regardless of the population you work with, should be bringing in stakeholders and caregivers, right, and, and soliciting feedback and having them part of the decision-making process. That's part of our ethics. Uh, getting someone, bringing someone, a stakeholder or a caregiver, and, and talking to them and getting them to shake their head yes isn't really getting them involved with decision-making, is it, Right. They should be questioning things. They should be asking questions. That is the sign of an involved caregiver. And sometimes I talk to behavior analysts who I think feel that questions are a bad thing, that caregivers shouldn't be asking questions when we we provide treatment recommendations or talk about the assessments that we need to do. Well, Mm -hmm. if they're questioning what what we're planning to do, they're questioning me and my, my competency, et cetera. And I think that's a pretty negative way of looking at it. I want to see parents ask questions, even difficult questions, even, you know, I've gotten questions about, you know, uh, are you planning to shock my kid? I hear ABA shocks children. Mm -hmm. I love that question. I hate that parents have to, you know, hear rumors or, or whatever misinformation about that, but I love that they're asking it because that means they trust me and I can, I can talk to them about this so I can help clear up the misinformation about it. And so it makes sense when you're working with diverse populations that this is even more needed and, and having the skills to be able to connect with those families is absolutely crucial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, it, you know, honestly, you know, the, the, the piece about integrating this, it's, it's also it means that it's it's more content that's going into graduate programs that are already jam packed with uh, really critical information that all behavior analysts need to have. And I, I don't think um, I, I feel very strongly that it needs to be integrated. And then at the same time, I also think that um, ABA agencies likely also need additional supports in order to be able to do some of this work because. There's only so much that the BCBA uh, will be able to do in order to truly, you know, kind of make these kinds of connections that I think are so important with families um, for them to kind of get to the point that they feel uh, comfortable with asking questions and um, and even just, you know, being a resource for the myriad of other things that families need when they're raising a child with disabilities. Um, And if if you'll allow me to go on a bit of a tangent here uh, because it's related. So. Uh, after I've you know been, been doing this work, one of the things that I've been doing recently is um, working collaboratively with with an agency uh, in East Boston that primarily serves families from uh, immigrant populations, um, a lot of Spanish speaking, but also uh, families from uh, who are uh, immigrants from different parts of Africa uh, and other areas that, you know, East Boston is a very diverse, um, culturally and ethnically diverse area. And so they, they're, they're housed there and they are primarily serving that population. And one of the initiatives that they did really from the beginning of the time that they started the company was that they hired somebody to be part of their administrative team, um, uh, as a family liaison. Um, so that family liaison, that person's job is to make that connection with the families. 
um, so that they are one aware of like truly what these services are uh, that their child is receiving that they uh, have a solid understanding that they need to be involved with their with the planning with the implementation that they absolutely can ask questions and should be asking questions uh, and then doing regular checkups regular follow-ups um, with them and of course you know part of she's you know part of the team so in communication with the bcbas who are providing that clinical supervision and developing treatment plans and that doesn't mean that the bcba's job does you know goes away i think that it's still integrated into what they do but you know that having that additional person be part of the team means that they um uh it, it also i think is a way to kind of uh, balance out that responsibility uh, and then it's just another trusted uh, person within the organization that the parents know that they can go to if there if there are concerns, for example, with match, um, because then they're not having to directly tell the person that is working with their child. They can communicate that still to somebody within the organization, and they don't have to leave the company. They can maybe just you know find somebody else that might be a good match within the company. So. Um, so that's, you know, I think something that uh, potentially could be a good model for uh, for companies to have um, a person like that on their administrative as part of their administrative team. That's awesome. That's such a cool resource and, and great idea to sort of live or act on something that I think a lot of behavior analysts are acknowledging, which is the fact that we need to build a more cultural competency, humility in our practice, but actually going, well, here's how we're going to do it. I agree with you as a, as a graduate program director. I, I think it's so important to build it into the training. But there are a lot of things that I work with my students on that if they don't get supervision and support doing it right mm -hmm. away, and I'm not even talking about different, I'm just talking about basic, you know, like treatment integrity stuff or, or specific assessments for problem behavior language, whatever it may yeah. be, that if they don't get that practice and support when they get into their job, they, potentially can regress in their skills and forget some of it. And I think mm -hmm. uh, certainly topics related to diversity have to probably be the same there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, uh, learning about it in an, academic, in an academic sense is definitely not the same as putting it into practice. And so I think that if there is a, um, as you said, really with any skill, right, if, if you're only um, are able to to explain things, or you have the verbal behavior to be able to uh, to fluently um, describe, uh, you know, any any domain or procedure within behavior analysis, but then you don't get the the experience as a practitioner to be able to practice that. Um, there is going to be a disconnect, um, and so I think that it becomes important to then think about how to work uh, collaboratively uh, with the people who are providing that supervision, if, if possible, um, for the graduate students in the program. I think we could go on. I, I catch myself <laughs> getting too wrapped up and, and interested in this conversation. got to do my job here and keep us moving along. Well, bit. maybe we can, yeah, maybe we can have a separate meeting at, a, at ABA. I would just meet up and talk about all this. Over. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I always do this. Neil. I always get wrapped up in, in one part of the, the article and uh, or our conversation, but yeah, this is, this is, this is cool. Um, but to segue us a little bit into sort of get toward wrapping things up, the last major section of your results section 
is, is focused on the parental perceptions of ABA services. And in your paper, you kind of talk about, well, this is like actually uh, kind of a, a cool uh, bit of information that you found here. So do you mind sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so the, the parents that were receiving the ABA services, which was roughly half of the, um, the sample that we ended up interviewing, we wanted to get some social validity uh, information about, you know, how, how they felt about the services. And so we asked questions, you know, about whether or not, you know, they would recommend the services to other parents who had a child with autism, uh, what they thought about the overall services that they were receiving, the that, you know, whether or not they thought that it was improving their child's quality of life, their own quality of life. Um, we asked questions about whether or not they were involved in the decisions that their child, uh, about their child's treatment plan, um, goals and objectives, you know, whether or not the, the therapist that they were working with, um, what that they felt was a good match that they was, you know, that they were meeting their child's needs, uh, explaining why they were working on certain goals and things like that. And the large majority um, or, or all of the respondents in this category really rated uh, all of these responses very, uh, very high. Um, the only one, um, that was not, which was, you know, I think purposely put in there is the amount of time the child was receiving, um, was appropriate and, um, fewer, fewer parents, uh, actually said that that was the case. And again, kind of tying that back to, uh, you know, maybe their, their desire to have more hours, um, but then not being able to know how to actually advocate for, or even ask whether or not that was possible. Um, but overall, very positive findings uh, for just their perception of the services that they were receiving, which was which was really great to see. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and really, you know, amongst the sort of information that may be less favorable, like it, it, it's difficult to hear that families aren't getting as many hours of services as, as we all know that they should be getting to see that at the end of the day, you know, uh, these families do see behavior analysis favorably and really do want these services, uh, I think shows the importance of needing to be able to reach out and, and to get people adequate services. Toward the end of your paper, you talk about implications for practice and policy, like what we should do with this information. Would you mind uh, talking to us about what you think we need to do related to practice and policy? Sure. Yeah, so there were there were uh, a few things, and I think one of the first things that um, you know we we talked about was again the need for collaboration uh, with other professionals. You know, in the sense that, for example, if uh, you know once children are enrolled in a school setting, um, a lot of parents, uh, well, none of the parents actually were able to confirm whether or not their child was receiving ABA services in the school, which of course can happen. Uh, but they, they didn't really, none of them were able to respond to that question with any level of certainty. Um, and then, you know, the possibility that there could be some um, more collaboration with other uh, types of professionals who are providing um, human services to individuals uh, with a variety of disabilities. And um, in the sense that those professionals are also interfacing with families. And so um, that could be a way that we could address the need for parents just needing more support and education 
uh, about services. So not just parent training in the sense that you teach someone how to implement a specific protocol or to implement a specific procedure that you want them to follow in a treatment plan, but just general education about what are ABA services and why is this something that you might want to seek out? What is it about? What's your role in these services? Um, so for example, you know, co collaborations with, uh, with social workers could be one. There's um, a recent publication uh, by somebody who is a social worker um, talking specifically about a program called Parents Taking Action or PAC. I'm happy to, to send you the link to that article because I think it's a nice way to show how, first of all, what, what does a model of parent training um, consist of? What are the, what are the components of that? Um, you know, it, it maybe the way that I've seen it um, kind of talked about in previous research within behavior analysis really has been highly focused on uh, skill implementation, right? Whether it's for behavior reduction programs or for, for teaching, um, teaching a skill to your child. Um, but some of that needs to, or all of it at times needs to be uh, adapted depending on the family to who you're working with. And then that's not the only thing I think that's involved with um, just being able to uh, embrace applied behavior analysis as a, as a model for, um, for intervention for children or adults with autism. Um, so this specific model really is adapted both for uh, cultural linguistic um, uh, diverse families. Uh, it's competency based. They talk about you know forming a partnership with families, and then also specifically talk about uh, forming partnerships with uh, community based organizations, which I think I think could be another way that we can we can um, broaden our reach when we're thinking about just education and uh, access to ABA services. So there are well-established community agencies really in, in any, um, in, in every state and, and, and city, I think in, in the US. And these are, you know, human service organizations that provide a, many different services uh, to communities. And so if we're able to partner as behavior analysts with those agencies, um, those agencies are already connecting with many families who may not know about behavior analysis. And frankly, other professionals working within those community organizations also may not know about behavior analysis. And so if we're able to partner and collaborate with those agencies, then that means that we can potentially not only educate the public uh, about behavior analysis, but then those people who are already trusted professionals for the families uh, can help us to, um, to further the reach to be able to uh, get the families to be more comfortable with um, knowing about ABA and then, you know, accepting that this is something that that can help uh, and those levels of comfort in general can increase. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really think that that could be um, a nice model for um, there's a term actually that I just uh, came across in, in the special education literature. I don't know if you've heard of it, but uh, they're uh, cultural brokers. So a cultural broker is somebody who essentially is not just an interpreter for you know, somebody who has a language barrier, but um, can also identify with the families that you're trying to uh, or wanting to interact with and 
that person because they're already a trusted member of the community um, is more easily able to uh, relate to the families. Uh, and then also the families are more easily able to relate to them. So if you, if we train the, the person who's this cultural broker within the community organization, um, it's, you know, again, the outreach means that it's, it's that much more that happens. That's a really cool resource. First of all, before I forget, we will link to that article you referenced in the show notes if you send it to me so the listeners will have easy access to it. But overall, to your the point you were making about needing to reach out and collaborate with, with other professionals that may have connections to these families and, and developing these cultural brokers, I think that's fascinating and so important. So, so thank you for sharing that. As we are getting close to our time here, I want to give you just a, a minute or two to, to share any other resources or references you may have on this topic with four behavior analysts who may be interested in, in learning more about it. Yeah, yeah. So this this might be a longer last thought um, because there's you know this this kind of disparity. Uh, the way I view it, it's it's a disparity in in access to services, right? So we have documentation for disparities and diagnoses, but now there's more uh, research that's coming out showing documented disparity in access to services. Um, and there's one article in particular that, I, that I'll share with you that was recently published um, that talked about uh, the idea of service deserts and service oases uh, and how at least within one state, they were they've been able to document that you know that this is this is a, this is something that happens, uh, and so they used uh, you know technology to be able to really clearly show the service availability for ABA services in less populated versus more populated areas of the state, and then also neighborhoods with low socioeconomic status versus medium and high socioeconomic status. And then the other, the other correlation was high na- neighborhoods with low SES with high population density. So I think, you know, as, as behavior, and al- behavior analysts, we, as a field, we've done uh, such amazing work and, and outreach um, to, um, to really all families. I think uh, we've, other people um, that have done work specifically, you know, with telehealth, even before the pandemic uh, began, I think really show that, um, the, that that's a model that can be used to do outreach for uh, where there's areas where there aren't, where there, it's just not very populated. Uh, and then there's these other areas that are highly populated, but have low SES, low socioeconomic status, uh, where there also are not any ABA services. And I think those are the areas that I, um, I just want to um, me personally, I'd love to be able to um, identify more organizations that are doing this kind of work because I know that they exist. Uh, one of the, the organization that I mentioned to you earlier uh, in East Boston is, is one of them. Um, so, you know, they purposely opened up a shop in an area that, uh, you know, kind of fit this demographic of low SES, high population density, because they saw that there weren't sort of clinical services, center-based services that were being offered in that area. Um, and I, you know, just, just to, um, I guess the, the first step is to, to, you know, start to have a conversation about it, uh, why that happens, um, what we can do, and then what we can do to support those organizations that are doing that work, 
um, as a field. I, I think that that's, that's really important. And again, I, I know of a few now because I've been kind of doing my own research, um, but I'm sure that there are more that I don't know about. And that's something that I think that, um, again, personally, I'd love to, to learn and hear from uh, those agencies um, so that we can, we can start to have more conversations about how we can support them and, and move forward and being able to, to close that gap uh, in, in access to services. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we have to call it time? No, I think I think uh, that that's all I'll, I'll say for today. I really appreciate the um, the time that you've uh, given. Uh, I feel like it's a it's a, a platform to be able to talk about the work that I'm I'm really passionate about, um, and it's really you know an area of, of research that I'm just getting started in. Um, so thank you uh, for inviting me to be on on the show. Yeah, thank you. It's it was great hearing about your research. Fascinating, incredibly important stuff. So I hope the listeners will will check out the article. We'll check out the resources that Rocio referenced, and and we'll provide links to those in the show notes. I wish we could go on. Uh, I I feel like we could we could have a just a series of, of episodes just on this topic alone. But of course, want to be respectful of everyone's time. And, and keep things on target as best I can. So thank you so much for, for coming today and, and having the conversation. Thank you, Cody. All right, before you go too far, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen. Find and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bad papers that we should review. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, for supporting this podcast. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>